But we've been in this series uh, talking about unfailing love, and we've been focusing on the minor prophets. And one of the things that, again, we've been talking about with the minor prophets is how we see this doom and gloom, and we forget about what God has been doing throughout the minor prophets. And what is that he's doing? He's calling us back to him. So it doesn't matter how far we've strayed, it doesn't matter um, how sinful we believe our life is, what we learn throughout the Minor Prophets is that God is saying, return to me, return to me. That's the overall theme we're seeing throughout the Minor Prophets, return to me, which is why we're focusing solely on the unfailing love of God and not so much on just the doom and gloom within that. Now, if you don't know by now, I'm also fascinated by Old Testament literature. Uh, because the writings, I believe, um, they tell a story that is often relatable to our culture. Uh, for example, um, today we're in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah has one chapter. But this book is like a really, really, really good K-drama. <laughs> you, you guys ever watch K-drama, you guys? <laughs> It's like a really good K-drama. The entirety of Israel's history is actually summed up in the book of Obadiah. But I actually, you know, did some research to understand the plot lines that make uh, K-drama really <laughs> appealing. And I pulled out a few of those plot lines from the book of Obadiah. And so this could be like our B-drama for biblical drama or Bible drama. I don't know what it is, you know. Just something, right? <laughs> But let's look at some of these plot lines. The first, what we'll see is uh, betrayal and conflict. Um, the nation of Edom betrays its brother nation, Israel, by participating in its downfall and plundering its resources. So we're seeing betrayal and conflict. Also see sibling rivalry. Do you guys have any sibling rivalry? Don't be a hand up, just, just want to put in, in your thought. You think about your younger brother or sister, or older ones, who knows, right? But the relationship between Jacob and Esau, um, who are ancestors of Israel and Edom, respectively, um, they're characterized by sibling rivalry throughout the Bible. There's also the underdog storyline. Obadiah prophesies against Edom's pride and arrogance and foretells uh, the eventual downfall despite their perceived strength. There's also the themes of justice. I mean, last week we talked about justice. This week you'll see some elements of justice as well. There's divine justice and retribution against Edom for their sins. Redemption and forgiveness. There's a message of hope and restoration through acts of kindness and forgiveness. Also see family and community dynamics. Um, the actions of individuals often have far-reaching consequences for their families and communities. And then what's a good K-drama without cultural context, right? It reflects the historical and cultural context of ancient Israel and Edom. Now, I mean, these are things that you see in a typical K-drama. Now, I don't watch K-drama. Um, my, my wife watched them. She go through all the series. But I do watch, you know, the Chinese and Hong Kong news. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that is because it's on my TV. So I just kind of like, if it's on my TV, I might as well watch it. But it's just you know, something about having to watch and read subtitles. Now, I have no clue they're saying with the Chinese news or anything, but I just kind of like, oh, that's what they're probably saying. I just use my imagination. So uh, that, that's better, you know. My wife is like, why is it on a Chinese station? What are you watching? 
I just sit there and I watch it. What can I say? But understanding the plot lines, uh, let's look at how we could develop different episodes in our drama. I know you guys think I'm, I'm just being funny, but it's true. The first thing we'll see is the encounter between God and Elijah. In 1 Kings, Elijah is already serving as God's messenger, and he's conveying um, these divine messages uh, to the people of Israel. Now, at this point in the narrative, uh, God commissions Elijah by pronouncing a drought upon Israel and condemning King Ahab for his actions, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, that statement itself, it, it sets the stage for this conflict between Elijah and King Ahab. Elijah makes this statement, and what we find in throughout 1 Kings, after he says this, it tells us that God brings him away, God hides him, and, and he's fed by ravens. So he disappears. We now have uh, this second encounter between Ahab and Obadiah. King Ahab ruled over Israel at the time, and he's married to a woman. You guys remember her name? Jezebel. We know that Jezebel is um, an evil woman. Um, she's killing uh, prophets, and um, essentially she runs the country. I mean, that's what it is. And so she influences um, King Ahab. We know that she worships Baal, and we, we spoke about that a few weeks ago. But things are complicated because Obadiah works for King Ahab. I told you it was kind of like a drama going on here. So in 1 Kings 18, verse 3, Obadiah is introduced as the manager of King Ahab's palace. So he's his right-hand man. We have now this third encounter, the encounter between Elijah and Obadiah. Now here we see this interaction between God's messenger, Elijah, and Ahab's trusted advisor, Obadiah. In 1 Kings 18, 7-14, I need to read this story. You can hear the interaction. It says, Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he, and he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from you, that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Uh, but I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go. Tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. 
So what he's saying is that, and I mentioned earlier, is that after he told Ahab about the, the drought, when Elijah mentioned this, he disappeared. God hid him, and God fed him. So he's saying, everywhere that King Ahab sent his men to find you, they couldn't find you. And now you're saying that I should go and tell him you're here. What happens if I go and tell him that you disappeared? God take you away, and now you're no longer here. He's going to kill me. So it would be a punishment for me to go to Ahab trusting that you're going to be here when I get back. It's like, isn't the fact that I've kept your prophets safe, isn't that good enough? I mean, he's literally like this CIA agent working behind the scenes where he's hiding prophets as Jezebel's trying to kill him. So Obadiah is like, well, no, I don't want to do this. But we see this fourth encounter, 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And so this confrontation between Elijah and Ahab is important to the narrative. Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest on Mount Carmel. Remember, we spoke about this, where he said, bring the prophets of Baal in Mount Carmel, and we'll offer sacrifices, and whichever God you know, brings fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice, that's the true God. You remember what happened with the, um, the prophets of Baal. They had their sacrifice on the, on the rock, and they were there all day calling on Baal, and Elijah said, um, hey, shout a little bit louder. Maybe he's sleeping, or maybe he's away. Remember that story? That's the same story. And then Elijah came through. He called on God. And God came, sent fire down, burned the sacrifice, burned the stone, even dried the water from the trench. So that's what we see here. But when analyzing narratives within Scripture, it's important to consider how each, fee, each piece, I should say, fit into the larger uh, story. So let's look at these uh, four encounters. Let's get them on the screen. Let's stay there for, for a little bit. In the first and fourth encounters, what, what do we see? What's similar? Huh? The first and the fourth one, what do we see? Same. What, what are you guys being see? I told you guys to come closer, you'll talk to me. You're too far away. So in the first and fourth encounters, we receive information about this ongoing narrative between Elijah and Ahab. But in encounters two and three, we find a subplot involving Obadiah. When looking at the subplot, Obadiah's role seems unnecessary for Elijah to fulfill his assignment. Because in the first one, when he says that there will be no water unless I said so, I mean, that was enough to bring us to the fourth encounter. So why did God introduce Obadiah in these encounters, this subplot? Obadiah's introduction lets us observe his response in meeting Elijah, fear and faith. The calling of God is often marked by fear and faithfulness. Fear often arises from the unknown or feelings of inadequacy. So while faithfulness involves trusting in God's promises and obeying his commands despite those fears, Lord, I don't know if I can do this, but I desire to be obedient, so I'm going to do so anyway. Fear, faithfulness. When I'm looking to, to release someone or empower someone to lead a ministry, 
The first thing I do after recognizing their gift, you know, you're gifted or you're called, the first thing I do is I assess their faithfulness. Matthew 25 is clear that if someone is faithful, they should be rewarded. It gives us this parable. Uh, for example, Nathan Fong was already faithful in his role before becoming the director over the production team. Darren was already faithful in his role before becoming operations coordinator. Paul Kwan was already faithful in working with our college worship team before becoming their coach, right? Justin Park was already faithful serving in college ministry before becoming the director. You get, you get a drift? So we don't withhold opportunities from people. As a pastor, I'm being a good steward in rewarding people based on their faithfulness concerning what has already been entrusted to them. See, I would rather work with someone um, who is faithful but feels inadequate or even fearful than to work with someone who is skilled but unfaithful. See, unfaithfulness or inconsistency, it tells a story that whatever a person is entrusted, it will be short-lived. One reason you haven't seen a lot more ministers going is not because we don't have skilled people. It's because there's sometimes uncertainty about whether we can fully rely on their commitment. Obadiah was already faithful in caring for the prophets behind the scenes. So God knew he could trust them to be his mouthpiece. The book of Obadiah highlights how God chooses, or how God can choose even a humble and faithful servant who is initially, initially working behind the scenes uh, to be his prophetic voice. And so who better to have and speak to a nation who is prideful than someone who's been faithful and humble working behind the scenes. So God speaks through those who can be trusted with his word. And so the book of Obadiah begins with a declaration of divine judgment against Edom. Edom, of course, is this neighboring nation to Israel. Verses 1 to 4 says this, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. It is important to understand the placement of these writings in biblical history. When we read about Judah and Edom, we see the story of Jacob and Esau, the sons of who? Isaac and Rebekah. You're like, how am I supposed to know this? They didn't teach me this in Sunday school. <laughs> but Obadiah switches between Judah and Edom, Jacob and Esau. I'm using them interchangeably. And here's why. Genesis 25 tells us this sibling rivalry it started in, in the mother's womb, in Rebecca's womb. 
Here's what it says, Genesis 25, verses 24 to 26. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So their life is this story of sibling rivalry, and that conflict continued from generation to generation. One example of this rivalry is actually in Numbers 20. Um, the Israelites, led by Moses, uh, they were seeking passage uh, through the land of Edom. Um, they were coming from Egypt. And here's what it says in verses, uh, verses 18 through 20, Numbers 20. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock uh, drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. So Edom came out and says, if you touch my land, I'm going to kill you, literally. This refusal underscores the ongoing rivalry between the Israelites, descendants of Jacob, and the Edomites, descendants of Esau. These are twins. This conflict is the background for the book of Obadiah. In our, in our text, Edom believed they were invincible. And, of course, they make a good point when you consider what we just read in Numbers 20. So God said in verse 3 that we read, The pride of your heart has deceived you. Uh, you who dwell in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, you say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? We see Edom's pride. But it's not only Edom. We must take pride seriously. Because sometimes we allow pride to become acceptable sins in our lives. Here are some examples of how this happens. Intellectual pride, believing that our intelligence or knowledge makes us superior. Spiritual pride, feeling spiritual superior or more righteous than others based on our religious practices because we you know, read three chapters a day or we pray for an hour. So we have spiritual pride. Success pride, taking excessive pride in our accomplishments or material possessions. Social pride, a tendency to look down on those who do not meet societal standards or success of appearance. There's a certain way you should look. Then there's national or cultural pride, believing that our nation or culture is inherently superior to others. Family pride, a sense of superiority over those from different family backgrounds or circumstances, relational pride, feeling entitled in relationships, believing that our needs should supersede others, right? False humility, pretending to be humble while secretly harboring feelings of pride or superiority, refusal to seek help, allowing pride to prevent admitting our weakness or even our struggle, and resistance to feedback, reacting defensively or dismissively to constructive criticism or feedback. And there are quite more we can list, right? 
In the case of Edom, but also an important lesson for us, God says, don't be deceived by your pride. God declares his intention to humble the prideful nation of Edom, whose arrogance had led them astray. Uh, this downfall of Edom resulted from their self-reliance and refusal to acknowledge God's sovereignty. So we could say that pride creates barriers that prevent us from intimacy with God because it blinds us to our faults and weaknesses. And that's what pride does. It pushes us further and further away from God. So God is saying there's retribution for the pride in our lives. Look what he says to, to Obadiah, or through Obadiah, I should say. Verses 5 to 9. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How is his hidden treasures shall be sought after? All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in the day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So God says, you think you're invincible. Okay, I got you. He says, when thieves and robbers come to your house, they take what they need and they leave. They can't take everything. But God says, when I'm done with you, when I'm finished, you will have nothing left. See, rebellion outside of God's sovereignty is complete destruction. And I know we like to hide behind grace. But pride is a sin and leads to unavoidable consequences. Now, before you start believing that God is unjust or unfair, here's why Edom would be subjected to this punishment. Verses 10 to 14. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the, at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up these among them who remained in the day of distress. You know, when, you, when you read through this passage, you see that there are eight different should or should not have done within the story itself. But in other words, Retribution is deserved. And these, um, there were neighbors. In fact, there were siblings coming through. And 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, 
But if anyone does not provide for his own, or especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think about that. Neglecting to care for one's family contradicts the fundamental principles of faith and morality. Uh, there is a familial responsibility within the context of Christian belief. And so, if we're all Christians in this room, let's say all of us are Christians in this room, we each have a responsibility to take care of the person next to us. That's what it says. Um, and if we don't take care of our fellow brothers and sisters, it says that, that we're worse than an unbeliever. That's what it says. And so when you think about the New Testament, they're reiterating a lot of things that were written in the Old Testament, and they talk about from before, that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to replace what God has been saying to his church. So this has been going on all through, throughout the you know, uh, generations. God is saying, take care of each other. So in Obadiah 10 to 14, the prophet condemns Edom for their mistreatment of their brother nation Israel during their dis time of distress. Instead of uh, offering support, Edom took advantage of Israel's vulnerability and actively participated in their destruction. It's like waiting for someone to have a bad day or a bad week. You guys ever had like a bad week? Not just a day, but a bad week? Yeah? Now, so what Obadiah was saying to God is just imagine someone having a bad week and you wait until they're having a bad week to point out all the flaws they have. Instead of saying offering support, you're saying, hey, uh, going to their boss or their superior and saying, man, you know, look what they're doing. If you had me, I could do better. That's what was going on back then. They're struggling and, and, and they're now vulnerable. And so you find that the Edomites is like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. Now that they're vulnerable, let me step in. This betrayal of brotherhood and callousness towards the suffering of others reveal the depths of Edomites' injustice and cruelty. Drawing parallels to our contemporary world, we see similar instances of injustice and oppression. So yes, you're seeing that both story from last week and this week has elements of justice within it. So whether it's systematic racism or economic inequality or human rights abuses, countless individuals and communities face marginalization and discrimination every day. It happens every day. Uh, but like Edom, those in positions of power and privilege often exploit uh, the vulnerables or, and they use it for their personal gain and you find this perpetual cycle of injustice and suffering. In Isaiah 1, verse 17, it encourages us to engage actively in seeking justice and correcting oppression. The call to uh, seek justice, it goes uh, beyond passive observation. It requires this proactive engagement, advocating for those who can't for themselves. And so Jesus consistently showed compassion and concern for those who were on the fringes, the poor, the sick, the outcasts, the oppressed. And so as followers of Christ, we're called to emulate his example by standing with the vulnerable 
and advocating for their rights and dignity. Amen? And so when we stand with those who are vulnerable, we not only uh, honor the teachings of Jesus, but we also demonstrate our commitment to love, compassion, and justice. Those are his characters. So Obadiah points out to Edom that God's punishment equals the crime. Like we're always saying, you can't handle it, don't dish it out, right? It's like someone who, you know, do those. You guys have ever done those mama jokes? Yeah. And, then you can't, and, then you, and then you can't take it? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't dish it out if you can't take it. So, so God was saying, it says, for the day of the Lord, and it's verse 15, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisals shall return upon your own head. Edom, you will reap what you sow because you neglect God's sovereignty and his people. But we see that all these stories, there's always restoration. We see the Lord restores his people. That's what we see in the end of Obadiah. Obadiah describes Israel's complete victory and restoration. In verse 18, we see victory over its enemies. It says, like a fire consumes stubble to convey complete and decisive nature of God's triumph. Nothing is left. In verses 19 to 20, we see restoration of these borders. Obadiah gives a picture of possession of everything that God had ever promised. So we see that Israel, they get it back in this story. In verse 21 says, Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Justice is established. And everything is now brought under God's sovereign rule. So there's a warning for all of us in the story of Obadiah. When you look through the book, you'll see all the things that they're pointing out. Again, in another book where it's just a small wind of God saying, return to me. But there's a warning for us. that Not only do we see the consequences of pride, but a question concerning how we live now. Based on how you've been living right now, think about your life right now, do you want what's fair? I know we pray over our meals. Maybe we pray for our safety or we pray for a friend who might be sick. But do you have the confidence to say, Lord, respond to how I've been living with what you believe is fair? If you were to pray that way, how confident would you feel with the reward you're going to be getting? In Romans 2, verses 5 to 8, Paul writes that those who persist in hardness of heart and refuse to repent are storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment. We talk about judgment. Um, can be just temporal things as well as we live in this earth. God who judges righteously will reward each person according to their deeds. But those who patiently wait in doing good and honor God receive eternal life. But those who are self-centered and disobedient to the truth, you'll face condemnation. So here's the truth of it. 
None of us can handle what's fair. But there's also the beauty. Considering the story of Obadiah, Jesus came from high. He was betrayed by one who had bread with him. We read about the bread in Obadiah. Jesus bore the shame of a cross. His brothers stood at a safe distance while his enemies gloated over him. We saw it in the Old Testament. We also saw that he was stripped and they cast lots for his possessions. Considering how much worse our lives would be if God repaid us for how we're living right now. But God's unfailing love remains steadfast. In, Hebrews, uh, in Hebrew, the, the term often used for steadfast love is the word hesed, which embodies both love, but also elements of kindness, mercy, and loyalty. As we close today, how do we respond to God's unfailing love? Because at the heart of Obadiah's message is a warning against the sin of pride. Edom's boastful attitude and reliance on their strength. What did they say? Who can bring us down? It was that kind of attitude that led them to oppress and mistreat their neighbors. Israel, their brother nation. And as we reflect on Edom's downfall, let us examine our lives for traces of pride that might hinder our relationship with God, but not just God, but also with others. Let us remember the eternal faithfulness of God. His love never fails. Even during judgment, those times when we're like, God, it's unfair based on what I'm feeling right now. But God's love remains. So maybe, maybe we humble ourselves before God, acknowledging our need for his grace and his mercy. And maybe we extend the same love we receive from God towards others, demonstrating compassion, sharing the message of hope and with the unfailing love of God. We're going to do a time of communion, but I wanted to really have a moment of reflection leading into our communion. I'm not sure if you guys are to have your elements with you. Um, if not, you can lift, raise your hand and they'll get some to you. But as we approach this moment of communion, I really want us to think about the significance of the bread and the cup that we have before us. Uh, these simple elements that carry profound symbolism. I know we do it each week, but it reminds us of the sacrificial love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'll give you a chance to uh, prepare and open it up. In the book of Obadiah, we encounter a narrative that speaks to the consequences of pride, betrayal, and injustice. Thank you. But within this story, we still find God's unfailing love, a love that pursues redeems and restores. And just as Obadiah prophesied against the nation of Edom, calling them to account for their sins, 
the practice of communion, it does the same. It calls us to examine our hearts. Are there areas of pride, selfishness, or even disobedience that we need to surrender to God? I want us to just examine our hearts even now. Examine where we might have fallen short. Examine how we might have ignored the prompting of, of God's Spirit speaking to us. Examine how we might have seen someone in need, but we chose to ignore. Examine how we might have, you know, tried to capitalize on someone's vulnerability. Rather than trying to offer support, we saw this as an opportunity for us. So let's examine our hearts. Lord, we're forever grateful for your love, your peace, your grace. Your love never fails. It's unfailing love. And God, throughout the Old Testament, throughout this series, we've seen, God, that even when we are far from you, you're always creating a pathway back to you. So God, I pray for the one that hasn't made that decision to follow you, uh, that they can see how you've sent your son to down the cross just to create this pathway. So I pray, God, that in this moment that you'll reveal how we've fallen short from, short from you, that you forgive us from our sins, God. Remove anything that will um, become barriers to our intimacy with you. And help us, God, to just draw close to you. We just love you, God. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.